0: Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and good morning. It's good to be with you today on the second Sunday of the season of Advent. And I don't know how many of you are new to Advent or if Advent is something that you are used to in your family, Uh, but Advent's an interesting season. So it kind of takes uh, some, some getting used to, because in the season of Advent, we're doing several things all at once. Uh, the first is we are retracing the long wait Israel had for their Messiah in the birth of Jesus. And so we prepare for and celebrate his coming, looking back to his first Advent, the first time <laughs> he came among us. Uh, but the other thing we're trying to do in this season is to look ahead. To think about that time when Jesus will come again, his second coming. And so we wait on that, and we're still waiting on that. Um, that. So, Actually, if you think about it, we are perfectly situated for Advent because we live between his first coming and the coming that is still to come. Um, and then there's another sense in which we do acknowledge that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to us even now. He makes his presence and his power known. He speaks through his word. We meet him at the table. We see him in the congregation gathered, and the Holy Spirit ministers uh, his presence among us. Advent is this interesting uh, time and season of light shining in the darkness. You'll notice during the Advent season, most of our Old Testament readings are from the prophet Isaiah. Um, And there was a a church father, St. Jerome. Anyone know who St. Jerome is? Uh, St. Jerome translated the the Latin Vulgate. Um, And he lived and ministered most of the time in Bethlehem. Um, If you go to Bethlehem now, you can visit the cave of St. Jerome where he did all of his work. And he seemed fascinated with the birth of Jesus and with the way the scriptures fit together to foretell that birth. St. Jerome said, Isaiah... Uh, should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he was composing a history of what had already happened instead of prophesying that which is to come. Isaiah, you see, centuries before the birth of Jesus, in a time of immense darkness for God's people, the prophet Isaiah holds out hope, holds out a light holds out a time when this figure, this Messiah would come and bring joy and deliverance and salvation for a people trapped, unable to escape the darkness around them and the darkness within them. Isaiah looked for the Messiah, the anointed one, a great king who would be born from the line of David, who would bring renewal and redemption, who would reestablish justice for the people of God. And if you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah, you'll know that so many of those prophecies he made, we see them fulfilled in the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. But then other times we read Isaiah and we go, well, that's a great and glorious hope. That hasn't come true yet. And we find that so many of his prophecies also are waiting for when Jesus will come again in great power and great glory. And so I just want to spend some time this morning with Isaiah chapter 11. Um, You'll have to indulge me. I'm going to geek out a little bit on this chapter because it's really fun uh, to look at. Uh, But Isaiah focuses on so many aspects of the coming king, the Messiah. He, He looks at the justice that the Messiah will bring. He looks at the peace the Messiah will bring. And he looks at the wisdom that the Messiah will embody. I don't know about you, when I hear those threefold things, justice, peace, and wisdom, there's there's an element of longing, of yearning. Because we, along with all of creation, we find ourselves longing for uh, perfect justice. We wait and we pray for peace, for shalom, for wholeness. And we wait for wisdom to be seen. And so let's just Look at this passage together, Isaiah 11, uh, verses 1 through 10. I want to actually jump in the middle of this at verse 3 because we hear about uh, the justice that the Messiah, this righteous king, will bring, and it's unique. Uh, Verse 3 says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And it talks about what uh, this figure will wear. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Part of the Messiah's uh, job description, their, their hope for when Jesus would come, is that he would be finally justice and righteousness incarnate. That he would administer and embody uh, fairness and equity and faithfulness. And Isaiah will flesh this out in several ways. Um, And the first is it it says that he shall not judge by what his eyes shall see. Um, In other words, he's not going to look at things that are superficial or on the surface or obvious. And I think Isaiah would say that tends to be how we make decisions and how justice is administered, right? We just look at the way the world works. We look at what's obvious. We look at what's on the surface or superficial. And Isaiah said there's a deeper justice beyond that um, that is to come. Um, The Messiah is not going to look like how the systems of the world looks and judges things, but the Messiah will judge with perfect impartiality. He's not going to just see with his eyes. And there's actually a backstory to this idea of God seeing beyond the surface to the way things actually are. You might remember this Old Testament story Um, In the book of Samuel, that the prophet Samuel has been told there's going to be a new king in Israel. Now, there's already a king, Saul, and Saul's a very likely candidate to be king. He's strong and tall and powerful and wise. But the Lord has decided there's going to be another king. He says, Samuel, go to the house of Jesse um, and anoint the one that I show you. And you might know this story Um, Samuel comes and he visits Jesse. And he says, one of your sons is going to be the future king of Israel. I need to anoint him here and now, which is actually a little bit dangerous because there's an actual king living in Israel at the time, Saul. But he said, hey, bring me your sons so we can see which of them God has chosen. You remember what Jesse does. He brings out all of his sons one by one. And they're, uh, I imagine they're tall and they're strong and they're powerful. Uh, they look regal. Maybe they're successful. And he brings them all out one by one. I like to think these are like five-star candidates to be king. And what does Samuel do? Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Not that one either. And they finally run out, and he's like, what's going on here? I've gone through all the sons, and none of them is the one to be king. Jesse, what's going on here? And Jesse goes... Well, yeah, there's, there's another one. Um, I don't know. He's kind of a runt. He's in the music. He's out with the sheep. Well, yeah, bring him. And that's David. And David comes in and, and Samuel anoints him. And we learn that David is going to be the king. But even more so, um, God is teaching his people I don't look at things the way you look at things, I don't perceive things the way you perceive them. I, I look and see the heart. And that's why David is anointed as king to follow in the line of Jesse. He's chosen to replace Saul, the shepherd boy, the unlikely one, the little one. Uh, He's so insignificant. No one even thought to fetch him. Can you imagine how left out he felt? Really? All of my brothers got invited and you just left me there? (laughs) Uh, No, they leave him out in the fields, but he was the one God had chosen. He was the one who was the man after God's own heart. And in a similar way, Isaiah says that the righteous Messiah will be able to see. He'll he'll be able to actually enact righteousness and justice um, in a truthful manner because he'll see through what's on the surface. Um, And this should be a great comfort to us because when we look around at the world, we know something's off, right? The things are broken broken and crooked and cracked. We're just saying two versions of the Song of Zechariah, this prophecy from Isaiah, that the crooked ways will be made straight, a highway in the wilderness. We need someone to come and reconfigure things, make them straight, make them smooth. And we long for that. And we get impatient in the right way with that. And we say, how long, O Lord? That's the cry of Advent. How long, O Lord? For centuries, God's people said, we're waiting for this Messiah. How long, O Lord? We're told he'll come again and and make everything the way it's supposed to be. Restoration and redemption and beauty. And we say, how long, O Lord, until you come? We're told here that the justice of the Messiah will especially help those who are at a disadvantage in this world. Uh, The poor, the weak, the vulnerable, Unlike the systems of this world that are stacked against and steamrolling, those who don't have access to to money and power and privilege, it says the Messiah will be the great um, equalizer. Verse 4 says that with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. And now I get it. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus, the judge, is going to pass sentence on the poor, right? The sense of this in the Hebrew poetry is much more like he will make things just for the poor. In other words, those who are poor, those who are uh, unable to advocate for themselves will finally get a fair shake, will finally get a fair hearing because of the work that Jesus will do. It's not that he's judging them. He's making fair judgment possible, uh, giving the meek a fair shot in contrast to all the failed kings of Israel. And really every ruler history has known this is the perfect Righteous one pursuing and creating justice. But well, there's more to that. Because when I hear that, and forgive me, my imagination has been uh, mainly steeped in World Cup soccer. <laughs> and so when I hear that someone will finally judge rightly, I'm like, oh good, they're finally going to referee completely. They're going to get the calls right instead of having it wrong. Because how often do you see unfairness? And you're like, I wish someone would just get this right. Right? And, well, it's not just that he's this fair ref on the sidelines. He's not aloof. He doesn't stand apart from the problem and say that's wrong. Isaiah says he's going to come down in the middle of it all to bring justice and righteousness and peace. He's going to take on everything that's wrong onto himself to make it right. He, He doesn't just make the world a little better. He comes to redeem and renew everything by his power and his presence. This idea of peace. That, that, I don't know what you think of when you read uh, Isaiah eleven six 6 through 9. It's, a, it's, I mean, it's fun, but it's, it's kind of a curious passage where we hear about what peace will look like. Um, what it looks like when the king makes everything right and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Bishop N.T. Wright calls a, a vision of a world healed by the love of God. Look at the violence and enmity that is taken away that we see in verses six through nine. Uh, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Now, I'm not an expert when it comes to animals, but I'm pretty sure if you have a wolf and you have a lamb, you don't send them out to play together, right? I'm pretty sure... That if you have a leopard and a goat, you're like, like, hey, go ahead, y'all are fine. Verse seven says, the cow and the bear shall graze. And I'm used to cow, they they eat a lot of grass. Um, I don't think a bear's is like vegetarians. I don't know about you. (laughs) There's an element of violence and, and pain and death that are removed from the equation when the Messiah comes. Uh, to the point that at verse 8 says, um, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Um, that's generally not wise, correct? Yeah. yeah, see, Tucker knows. We don't do that. We don't play with snakes. We don't play with cobras or scorpions. This is a dangerous thing. It says the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. By the way, these are not prescriptions. Um, If you go to a church and they're playing with snakes, you want to run away. Um, This is a a picture of what it looks like when enmity and pain and strife are removed from God's good creation. When things are renewed and restored, not just as they ought to be, but in ways that we can't even hope or imagine. That's the kind of image that Isaiah gives us. And then embedded in the middle of it, verse 6, just this tantalizing little verse. Uh, That the little child shall lead them. The little child uh, shall lead them. This is again Isaiah, the Christmas evangelist, not just the prophet. Um, It's fascinating. We're told in verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain than this for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's one of the most glorious verses, I think, in the entire Bible. Um, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it's, it's a little odd. I get it. Um, and and you, you understand that why this is a strange image, right? As the waters cover the sea. What's the sea made of? Water. It feels redundant. As the waters cover the water. Like, what's happening here? Later on, Paul will say that God will fill all and be in all. It's that kind of an idea, this hope-filled, tantalizing verse That God will flood the world with himself, with his love and his presence, uh, with his goodness and with his beauty. And even all that's created will be taken up and enhanced yet further. And everything that is crooked will be made straight. Everything that is broken will be repaired. Everything that is evil will be made right. And all the darkness will give way to the light. That's the hope that Isaiah is putting before the people. And we get the fullest foretaste of this. We, we get the, the best glimpse of what this might look like in the person of Jesus. Um, which I love, because if this really is an image for those who are weak and vulnerable and, and poor and, and without power, I mean, what better image could you think of than one who would come as a baby? One who would come as a child. One who would come helpless? And vulnerable and completely dependent on another. Uh, One who would come not to a palace, but one who would come in a manger, in a cave, to a blue collar, blue tunic family from the middle of nowhere in Israel, part of a people that literally is being stomped on by the true power of the day, the Roman Empire. That's an odd way to go about things, an odd way to redeem and renew everything. I love it because it's not that God relates to the poor and the meek in this kind of paternalistic, patronizing way. He's not doing community service here. No, He comes as one who is poor and meek. He comes as Mary's gentle baby son. And He comes as one who is wise. Let's jump back up to the beginning of our passage, verses uh, 1 and 2. Because if you think about What's the best way to sum up this figure? According to Isaiah, he's going to say he's wise. Wisdom is found in this person that we're waiting for. Verse eleven or chapter eleven, verse one: There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. We'll talk about that in a minute. But verse two says, "The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him." The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Um, Now, in the ancient church, there are volumes of sermons reflecting on these verses because they loved all the seven different kinds of wisdom and knowledge that we see in this passage. But as I look at it, there's one thing that's repeated twice, which kind of helps us because when things are repeated, it's, it's like the scriptures are underlining it for us. Like, hey, pay attention. What's repeated? The Messiah has, it says that he has the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He has a right reverence in all. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom begins and ends with understanding who we are in relation to God. The Messiah understood perfectly who he was In relation to God. If you're reading this and going, man, how in the world would I apply a prophecy about the Messiah in my life? I think that's maybe the the door to walk through. Do you know who you are in relation to God? Do you have a right understanding and proper uh, fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge? Do we realize that we are made in His image, completely dependent on His grace and goodness and provision? that wisdom comes from his work in our life and his Holy Spirit's presence in our life. Just in the same way that the King, the Messiah, would be anointed by the Spirit, we are called to be anointed by the Spirit and indwelled and empowered by the Spirit. Um, And I just think it's interesting how much they emphasize that this is God's wisdom because everything about the first coming of Jesus looked like folly and looked like foolishness. It didn't look like wisdom. It didn't look like strength or glory or power. It's foolishness to the world. The idea that God would become flesh and dwell among us. The idea of a king being born in a manger. The idea of a virgin giving birth. Of a Messiah being crucified. Of someone who's dead being raised to life. That's not wisdom according to the way of the world. That's folly and foolishness, but it is the strength and power of our God. And in his first coming among us, we see that God comes himself, the ancient of days, entering heaven and earth, entering time and space for us and for our salvation. And so we look back with gratitude for the first time he came came among us and, and we wait and long for when he will come again. And so one more thing I want to talk about as we uh, begin to close here, because there's something interesting. It's just a little, it's a detail, but it's, it's, it's a colorful detail. It's an interesting detail regarding the, uh, the identity of this promised one, uh, the Messiah. Um, verse one says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Um, and just get the image of what they've said. You have Jesse's line, his family like a tree. The, the royal lineage of Israel, by the time you get to Isaiah, has been reduced to a stump. It's been cut down. It's been cast aside. Now, I don't know about you, but the couple times I've had trees removed, what do you have to do with the stump? You get rid of it. You unearth it. Why? It's dead. It's a nuisance. You can trip over it. There's nothing life-giving. It's actually done past its prime, finished its usefulness. The stump. You get this idea that from what looked finished and discarded and dead and useless, from that, God is going to bring new life. God is going to bring a branch. God is going to bring a shoot. Um, last month, I was in uh, Bethlehem at the Church of the Nativity. It's where we celebrate the birth of our Lord. And there's this side chapel. It's the chapel of St. Catherine. She was a martyr in the early church. And on the wall is this huge sculpture. Um, and it, it's an interesting, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but it's this huge sculpture. And on one side, is the lineage of Jesse, the tree of Jesse, with all these leaves with names on it. Maybe some of you probably for an Advent tradition have done a Jesse tree, where you trace the lineage of Jesse, you trace these stories in the Old Testament. So the whole left side of the sculpture is this Jesse tree with this stump at the bottom um, that actually has Abraham and Jesse on it. Um, And then actually the entire picture that's in your frame Is actually of what we talked about earlier when Samuel came to Jesse's house. And you have all the five star likely kings, his brothers of David, lined up, and you've got David over here with the sheep. It's just telling us in that that even as Jesse's tree grows, it's not in a way that we would expect or we would anticipate. A shoot comes from the stump, and this branch bears uh, fruit. But then there's one other strange detail. It's in verse 10. It kind of bookends this passage. It says, In that day uh, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now here's what's really strange in this passage: is the same person is the shoot and the offspring of Jesse. That same person is also the root of Jesse, the source, where Jesse comes from. That's very odd that you would have one person who is both the source and the root and then the descendant and the shoot. How does that happen? How do you have someone who is before Jesse and then follows Jesse? How do you have someone who is both the root and the shoot? Descendant and source. And we obviously now can kind of look back with, you know, 2020 vision and see how Jesus (laughs) was fully God and fully man. The one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The one through whom God created everything we see, the Word who was with God, and then the Word who became flesh. And dwelt among us, the one who is both root and shoot, the Lord Jesus. And so in this season, we renew our commitment to him. We renew our worship of him. We renew our longing for him to come and bring righteousness and peace and the wisdom as only he can. And we seek to look in this story that seems foolish to so many. Or maybe it's obscured by commercialism and gifts and all the things of this season that crowd in. And we look to see, is there glory in the store? Is there glory in the manger? What do we make of this, our God, who would come in this way? And are we ready for him to come again? Do we have a, a taste, an appetite for what it will look like when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, in the face of injustice and evil and sin and death, do we have a concept of one day those things will be ended and God's will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. And even as we wait, we recognize that this work has started, started in you and me, that we can be part of it in the sense that God gives us uh, work to do, And so as we wait, we work and we worship. We respond with delight for all that God has done in and through us. And I would just say, as we read this picture of beauty and righteousness and justice and redemption, we're under no illusions that we can force this to happen, but we work for it. And we work towards it. And when we see, you know, little shoots sprouting up, we celebrate them as a foretaste of all that is to come as a down payment on the promise of our hope that we find in the Lord Jesus who will come again. And so during this season, my hope would be that we would slow down, that we would wait, that we would retrace this story, that actually we would be aware that he's coming again. We'd make preparation for that. We'd live in light of that, that Christ was born, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Oh come, O come, Messiah, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.